So we've been looking in, in the series at Mosaic at the sort of meta-narrative, the large story that spans the biblical text from Genesis through to Revelation. And uh, in the week before the talk that I gave, Simon talked about the part of the story where God chooses a people. All right? Yeah. Okay, well, God chooses a people to be the vehicle of his redeeming, restoring purposes in the world. And Simon focused on sort of the two historical, key historical figures in that part of the story. So he, he, he described it as bookends. So at one side there is Abraham, who becomes the forefather of the chosen people of Israel eventually. And Abraham sort of functions in the story as a kind of second Adam, sort of a fresh start in the human story after the first Adam screwed things up. And he's going to be the one through whom God sets about reversing the effects of sin. And then at the other end is Moses, who centuries later uh, leads the people of Israel out of servitude in Egypt and constitutes them as an independent nation uh, under the rule of God, which is expressed in the gift of the, of the Torah, the gift of the law. In both ends of the story, God binds himself to his chosen people by means of covenant. So covenant's a really central concept in the Bible. So there's the Abrahamic covenant, which we'll talk about a bit more in a moment, and there's the covenant with Moses on, on Mount Sinai. So a covenant in the biblical story is a sacred agreement in which both parties take on obligations towards each other and promise to discharge those obligations on pain of death. And that's perhaps why covenants were typically sealed by sacrifice. Now, nobody's really sure why sacrifice played such a large role, but one explanation is that the death of the sacrificial victim was a kind of representation of what the parties were wishing on themselves if they were ever to breach covenant. The basic covenant promise between God and Israel, which is repeated many, many times throughout the Old Testament, but is put really crisply in, in this uh, text from Jeremiah 7, the basic covenant promise was, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and you will walk only in the ways that I command you. So there's the, the two-sided Agreement, I will be your God, you will be my people, and your responsibility is walk in the ways that I command you. So the, the, the part of the story where God chooses a people, in a sense, is God's act to restore humanity to its place following the entry of sin. But as well as that, the story suggests that God is also committed to restoring the earth, or restoring the land, which has been corrupted by the entry of sin. So in Genesis 3, we have the, the, the penalty that's pronounced in Adam and Eve includes a cursing of the ground. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat all the days of your life, thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of the ground you are taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. So this sense that the problem has extended beyond the human community to affect... Uh, material creation as well. So to restore humanity in the story, God chooses a particular people or a particular nation. To restore the earth, God gives to that people a particular tract of land. In Deuteronomy, it's spoken of as a land flowing with milk and honey. To care for in the same way that Adam and Eve cared for Eden. So I guess the first lesson 
from all this is land is absolutely central to the biblical story. There's a sense in which the whole biblical drama is propelled forward by Israel's tenuous relationship with land. And in fact, you could tell the whole story from the perspective of land. It would go something like this. The land that God created is cursed because of sin. Humankind is expelled from Eden, and you remember that Cain's descendants, one of the punishment upon them was to wander aimlessly through the earth. But God, as part of reversing this problem, promises a land to Abraham's descendants. 400 years later, God delivers on that promise by liberating Israel from the land of Egypt and leading her through the wilderness to the banks of the River Jordan. Moses dies at that point, and Joshua leads Israel over the Jordan and into the land of Canaan, where he slaughters the inhabitants and seizes the land for himself or for his people. Israel settles in the land for centuries, and eventually political and religious power becomes concentrated in the city of Jerusalem, which also looms very large, you know, temple, city, land are the three great ideas in the Old Testament covenant as well, I guess. Uh, Israel throughout the centuries is defending the land from enemy attacks, the Philistines and all the rest of it. Uh, and for a short period under David's rule, expands the boundaries even further than it was initially given. But once she has settled in her own land, Israel is often, the big audience here will copy, is often unfaithful to God. I mean, despite the dire warnings of the prophets about what would happen, about the consequences of idolatry and oppression. And eventually, those consequences come home to roost. First on the northern kingdom, which is defeated by the Assyrians in the 8th century, and then on the southern kingdom, the remaining tribes in the south, uh, by the Babylonians in the 6th century. And the nation, what remains of the nation, is carried off into exile uh, in the year 586 BC, which was a devastating experience. And many of the prophets in the Old Testament are wrestling with this catastrophe that's fallen on Israel of being root, uprooted from the land and, and taken into, into captivity. But God, to continue the story, promises through the prophets that he will regather Israel and will restore the land to her. Uh, which happens when the Persian king Cyrus permits the exiles to return home in the year 538 BC. So the Old Testament narrative closes with the Judean exiles re-establishing themselves in the land, rebuilding the temple, and recommitting themselves to observe the law. So that's, as I said, that's the Old Testament in a, in a, you know, in a nutshell, really. But despite the return from Babylonian exile, despite the restoration, there are several remaining problems. The first is that Israel never again enjoyed political independence. Apart from a very short period in the 2nd century BC in the Maccabean period where there was a, a rebellion and for a few decades uh, Israel enjoyed a, a brief period of, of independence. But apart from that, effectively, even though Israel had come back from exile, she remained tenants in her own land. She was always under the domination of a series of great imperial powers, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Seleucids, and eventually the Romans. Second problem was that the return from exile had not been accompanied by all that the prophets had predicted. So the exilic prophets 
talked about how when Israel returned from exile, creation itself would have fruitfulness restored, sickness and death would end, the reign of peace would begin, God's kingdom would come on earth at last. Israel had returned from exile, but somehow the exile hadn't really ended. Things were not the way that the prophets said they ought to be. There was a sense that the prophetic hope was still unrealized, despite the fact that the temple wall, the, the city walls were being rebuilt and the temple was being restored. And the third problem was that despite the chastening experience of exile, Israel still fell into failure, still fell into compromise, into oppression and injustice. And in the post-exilic period, that period after the return from exile until we uh, reached the New Testament, uh, the Jewish community placed enormous emphasis on the importance of observing the law in all its detail in order to control this problem of failure, this problem of sin, and to atone for the failures that occurred. And the rabbis taught that if only Israel could observe the law perfectly for one day, that would be enough then that would trigger the coming of the end and God's reign would come and the kingdom would, um, would be established. She would be freed from her foes and God would restore his, uh, his reign on earth. You get a, a bit of a, a feel for this in Luke with Zechariah, you know, when he sees the baby, the infant Jesus, and he talks about how at last God has acted to free us from our enemies and give us peace and, and restore us to, you know, to what we are called to be. So these three realities then, the continuation of foreign domination, the sense that prophetic hopes remained unfulfilled in their fullness, and the problem of persistent disobedience in the people provide the setting for (coughs) Act 4, for the coming of Christ and the gift of the Spirit, the birth of the Church. So Israel's ambiguous relationship to land is a fundamental driver of the biblical story. And the plot line really runs, to put it really simply, land promised, land given, land lost, land restored, problem still remains. Creation is still broken. The people are still oppressed. So land looms really large over the Old Testament story. And the question I guess we have is, well, what significance does this have for us today? And as we'll see in a moment, we're a bit further down in the story. But I want to suggest that there are three things that um, this theme of land um, has to teach us, three things that we need to really understand if we make sense of this theme. And the three of these, and I'm going to expand on all, all, all of them, but the three things, are the first point to realise is that the land given to Israel is for the ultimate purpose of universal redemption. So the ultimate goal of the gift of the land is the redemption of all things. The second point is that Israel's possession of the land is conditional rather than absolute. And the third thing is that the purpose of the land is fulfilled and transformed in Christ. So the theme of the land, I think, is one of those things in the Old Testament where Jesus makes a difference. So if you remember the very first talk, I suggested that we should really only apply the Old Testament realities to ourselves after we've asked the question, what difference does Jesus make? And I'm going to suggest in a moment that he makes a difference in this theme. So those three points. 
The first then is that the promise of the land is part of God's covenant with Abraham. And this covenantal promise is repeated many times in Genesis. It's really significant uh, in, the, in, the, in the story. So let me just read you from three, three or four different places in Genesis where this promise of land is, is uh, expressed. So Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abraham, Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abraham, and when they came to the land of Canaan, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. The Lord said to Abraham after Lot had separated from him, Raise your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Rise up and walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And then later on, Genesis 15, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I give this land, from the river, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and Kenizzites and Cadmonites and Hittites and Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites and the Jebusites. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land where you are, now an alien, all the land of Canaan, for a perpetual holding. I will be their God. So the, the, the point, I think, to take from these texts is that the gift of the land to Abraham and his descendants is a means to an end. The end is that Abraham will become a great nation and will be a blessing to others, and in him will all the families of the earth be blessed. When this happens, I mean this promise is given centuries before it's realised, when it happens under Moses, the vocation that Abraham's descendants, this people, this, this great nation that will be uh, a blessing to others, the vocation that's that given under the covenant with Moses is to be, this is Exodus 16.6, a priestly kingdom, and a holy nation. So what does that mean? What does it mean for Israel to be created uh, as a priestly kingdom and a holy nation? Well, I think in any religion, the key role that priests play is a representative or mediatorial role. So the role of the priest is, on the one hand, to represent God to the community, and on the other hand, to represent the community before God. So the community is embodied in the actions that the priest undertakes and, the, and, and the, the, the community benefits from the actions of the priest. So a priest sort of stands between the divine and the human and mediates both ways. So a priestly kingdom meant that on the one hand Israel's intended vocation in the world was to represent what God was like to the other nations to show how God's kingship worked out in everyday life. By observing Israel, the idea was, the nations could catch a glimpse of what God was really like. 
and God was unlike the gods of the nations that surrounded her. So Israel represents God to the world, but on the other hand, Israel represents or embodies all humanity before God. And this is really important for understanding how, for understanding the work of Christ, really, because you know, Israel represents humanity, the Messiah represents Israel, therefore what happens to the Messiah sort of feeds back through the system to affect all humanity. It's this sort of law of representation. So Israel represents all humanity before God. What God does for Israel is intended to be ultimately a benefit to all nations. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this priestly vocation is discharged by living as, again from Exodus 16, a holy nation. So the essence of the idea of holiness in the Bible is the idea of being different, of being unlike what is common, unlike what is familiar. So Israel is to be a different kind of nation, visibly dwelling in its own territory under God's kingship. And probably the underlying idea is that this land that God gives to this people will be a sort of second Eden. It will be a land flowing with milk and honey. So as one of the commentators puts it, the stage is now set for Israel to live as a light to the nations. God's response to mutiny in his good creation has been to elect one man, Abraham, and then to recover part of the earth and to place Abraham's descendants there. Israel in the land is meant to be a taste of what God intends for the whole of his creation. So it's a kind of repetition of the story of Eden. But this vocation that this people is given in the land all depends upon her abiding by the law, by the terms of the covenant, uh, which contains, I mean, hundreds of instructions in the Mosaic law, but many of them are instructions about how to care for the land and how to create social justice, how to be a community that reflects the character of God. Uh, or in modern language, there's so much in the law, I mean, we get sort of all tied up around the, you know, the ritual laws about priests and so on, but a good deal of the law is to do with what we would call environmental concerns or social justice concerns. So you know, the Sabbath laws and the Jubilee laws uh, are simultaneously about caring for the land and about creating a just community with this sort of um, redistribution of wealth that occurs. So the remainder of the Old Testament story really is about how faithful or unfaithful Israel is in the land, living up to this vocation to be a holy priestly nation. So that's the first point then. Abraham's reception of this gift of exclusive possession of one piece of land is intended in the story ultimately to benefit all humanity by showcasing what God's rule looks like uh, visibly through obedience to the law. Unfortunately, at least I think it's a bit unfortunate, the land is already occupied by other people. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kedmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Which means that in order to possess the land, Israel has to dispossess its current owners. And she does so by means of holy war, which at times involves what we again today would call acts of genocide, the attempt to completely obliterate all the people 
and all their culture. And so the, 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 the possession of the land's association with war is so close that the book of Joshua says, and this is a really telling verse, it says, So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. Because for Joshua to do that, it required um, a lot of bloodshed. A kind of divine blitzkrieg, really. And the biblical writers, insofar as they explain it, and they don't really try very hard to explain it as far as I can see, but insofar as there's a sort of explanation for this divine blitzkrieg, there are two things that, that get mentioned. One is that this is a punishment from God for the depravity of the existing inhabitants. Um, you know, things like child sacrifice and so on that were going on there. So, on the one hand, it's a kind of another flood episode, a kind of sweeping away of sinful uh, communities. And the other explanation, I think the more important one, is that it was an attempt to create a kind of sterile zone around Israel so that she could live this vocation of being this different kind of nation, free from the temptations to idolatry and the associated abuses of that that uh, existed in the surrounding peoples. Now, again, whatever we make of those explanations, it seems to me the subsequent story suggests that it didn't really work very well because Israel still succumbed to the temptation of the Baals, the fertility gods. And I remember reading years ago an explanation for why this was such a temptation. You know, because Israel had this belief that there was one invisible God who controlled everything. But you know what happens when um, you know the, the the cattle don't bear bear calves. I mean, everybody else has got a fertility god you can appeal to. When you go into battle, they've got a war god you can appeal to, and we've just got one. Uh, more gods, the better. You've got more bases covered, and so there's a constant temptation to go after the Baals, to go after these sort of uh, pagan fertility gods, and uh, as an expression of a lack of confidence uh, in Yahweh. So Israel still succumbed to idolatry. She still disobeyed the Torah. She still failed to fulfill her priestly vocation as a holy nation. And you know the stories that we read about uh, her demand for a, for, a, for a monarchy. We want a king like all the other nations have a king. And God sort of pushes back and says, no, I'm your king. But eventually he sort of concedes to this request and we have the establishment um, of the monarchy uh, under Samuel. So, the first lesson then, I think, to take from this theme of the land in the Old Testament is that it was intended to function as a showcase for life under God's rule in the midst of you know, the vicious thraldom of sin. So Adam and Eve lived in Eden in a sin-free environment but failed to keep faith with God and were expelled from the land. Israel lives in Canaan in a sin-dominated environment trying to recreate Eden through obedience to the law and submission to the rule of God through the covenant, but she too still fails. Both those sort of um, scenes, I think, affirm God's intention to um, fulfill this material world. I mean, this, there's no sort of spiritual separation implied by this. This was lifeless to be lived in God's creation. 
It affirms the goodness of the material world and it affirms humanity's vocation to do God's will on earth as it is in heaven, to actually live in this material world in a way that reflects the will of God, to be fruitful and fill the earth, to tend creation as a garden, to unfold its richness, to live a life that is just and not not exploitative and so on. Israel's checkered history in trying to fulfill this vocation in her own land I think is both instructive for us because there's a lot that we learn from the law and the prophets about what it means to live in the world uh, in a way that honours the character of God. But it's also very sobering because even with the divinely revealed law and even with the divinely gifted land, Israel still succumbs to idolatry. Israel still falls. Injustice and failure still occur. So the choice of Israel and the gift of a land to Israel is part of God's answer to the problem of Adam's failure, but initially the answer ends up looking pretty much like the problem. The solution looks pretty much like the original problem. The, the, the problem gets replicated down um, in the life of Israel despite all this attempt to, to restore and to heal. Which leads to the second theme about the land, that it's conditional. So in Genesis 17, when God gives Canaan to Abraham and his descendants, he says it is for a perpetual holding. It's for all time. It's eternal. Uh, you find this about circumcision as well. It's forever. You, know, you get the sense it's never going to change. Uh, it's for now and forever. God's the divine landlord. Israel is granted permanent tenancy uh, in, in God's realm. She occupies the territory by divine right, regardless of what the current tenants uh, feel about it. So this is the core conviction of modern Zionism, including Christian Zionism. This idea that Israel has been given by divine right her own holy land. It belongs only to the Jewish people. Uh, because God's given it to her, and we simply have to accept this, whatever other people who happen to be living in the area think about it. So this nation, scholars sometimes call it this idea of sacred turf, uh, and it's not unique to Jews. I mean, it's actually common to all the major religions. All religions have certain territory or certain, um, certain places uh, or certain artefacts that they regard as being holy. And it's one of the major religious uh, causes of religious conflict in the world. So the Middle East is the most militarized place of real estate on the planet because Jews, Muslims and Christians all regard it as they all regard the same territory uh, as uniquely holy to them. And Christian Zionism is the, is, the, is the belief that Christians ought to acknowledge, still acknowledge Israel's divine right to possess the land. Now I I think Christian Zionism is really misguided uh, and in the current environment it's actually really dangerous because it tends to be, you know, it's had a major influence on American um, administrations over recent uh, decades. But to me it misses two really crucial points about the story. And the first point is that God gives the land to Israel as a permanent possession, that's certainly the case, but it comes with crucial conditions. And the conditions are that Israel must live in the land according to God's covenant law. 
And if she fails to do so, then she will forfeit the gift that has been given. Covenant law requires her to live justly and mercifully, to avoid the deceit and abuses of idolatry, to care for the poor and the weak and the stranger, not to oppress the alien and the sojourner, the immigrant and the refugee, but to treat them as fellow citizens. If she fails to do that, then God threatens to drive her out of the land and turn it over to others. Now, the, 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 the book that makes this clearest in the Old Testament is the book of Deuteronomy. And you find, I'll, I'll read you just some of the texts from Deuteronomy, where you, you get this idea that you know, if you don't keep your side of the bargain, then you're going to lose um, the land. So, here's Deuteronomy 29. I'm making this covenant with you, sworn by an oath. All who hear the words of this oath and bless themselves, thinking in their hearts, we are safe, even though we go our own stubborn ways. All the curses written in this book will descend on them, and the Lord will blot out their names from under heaven. All the nations will wonder, why has the Lord done thus to this land? What caused this great display of anger? They will conclude, it is because they abandoned the covenant with the Lord. The Lord uprooted them from their land in anger, fury and great wrath and cast them into another land, as is now the case. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God by loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways and observing his commandments and decrees and ordinances, then you shall live and become numerous, and the Lord will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. But if you turn your hearts away and you do not hear, but are led astray to bow down to other gods and serve them, I will declare to you today that you shall perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live in the land that the Lord swore to give to your ancestor, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So the land is given in perpetuity, but possession of the inheritance is still conditional on Israel's faithfulness to her side of the covenant. And, I mean, there are Jewish activists in modern Israel that use this idea to critique the way that Israel treats the Palestinians, saying that the claim that um, Orthodox Jews make to divine possession of, of the land is actually voided by the fact that she oppresses the Palestinians, because that means she breaches her side of the covenant and therefore can't claim the promise, which is a pretty powerful critique for, um, you know, for Jewish activists to raise. So, the, the, the promise is conditional. However, although Israel is eventually dispossessed of the land in the exile, God still does not renege on his covenant promise of a perpetual holding, but fulfills its true goal. He promises that he will regather Israel and return her to the land. And this restoration will be accompanied by a new covenant with Israel. And it will be accompanied by the conversion of all the nations to Israel's God and the reign of universal peace. And again, this comes through in uh, both Micah and in Isaiah 2. I'm going to read you this text as well. My, uh, friends of ours, Margaret and ours, who are uh, early church historians, 
uh, have told me that this text from Micah, and there's a very similar version of it in Isaiah too, were amongst the most favourite texts of the early Christians. That you know, They used to compile these little collections of texts that they used, little lectionaries. Um, and from the texts that they chose, you get the idea, you get a feel for how the early Christians used to tell the meta-narrative. And the texts that they found most illuminating of their experience. And this was one of them, and you'll see why in a moment. So this is Micah 4. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised up above the hills. People shall stream to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction in the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall arbitrate between strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall all sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken this. So this idea that when um, the land is restored, that the nations will flock to Jerusalem and they will ask to be instructed in the ways of the Lord and then the reign of peace shall come and war shall be ended. So God gave Canaan to Israel as a perpetual holding in order to be a blessing to all nations. Now following the return from exile, God plans to bless all the nations by drawing them into covenant relationship with himself alongside Israel in peace. And when that happens, then the land becomes a universal possession. Which brings us then to the third thing about the role of land in biblical theology. Uh, And that is that it is transformed by the work of Christ. So in my notes I've got for part three an expanded vision. It's an expanded vision of the land. You know, in all my years of teaching um, New Testament theology, I never ever taught anything on the land. And I mean, the reason for that is because the New Testament has very little to say about the land. Mm-hmm. It's actually quite striking how little it has to say about the land, given how dominant it is in the Old Testament. It virtually disappears from view in the New Testament. Again, I think a point that Christian Zionists tend to miss. Why is it then that this theme of the land, the city, the temple, these sort of great themes of the Old Testament are transformed in the New. Well, the reason is because the early Christians believed that the promise to Abraham, that in him all the nations of the world will be blessed, that that promise had now been realized in Christ, and that that necessarily affected the role of land. So Paul, who's the, the great New Testament theologian, the great sort of, in many ways, founder of, of, of Christian theology. When Paul, as he does on a number of occasions, sort of retells the story of Israel, he tends to elevate Abraham over Moses. So Moses was the most important figure in Jewish tradition. But Paul sees Abraham as even more important. And what he, when, he, when he refers to the, to the promise to Abraham, when he sort of paraphrases it, he actually makes quite a, a telling Uh, adaptation of the promise, because he suggests that God did not simply promise Abraham a land, 
He actually promised Abraham the whole world. So Romans 4 reads, For the promise that he would inherit the world, not just the land, but inherit the world, did not come to Abraham or his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. It depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, that's the Jews, not just to them, but also to those who share in the faith of Abraham, us, right? For he is the father of all of us, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. So what Paul is suggesting is that this promise to Abraham is actually fulfilled in Christ. And in him, the covenant community becomes universalized, or if you like, internationalized. And the covenant promises to Israel become universalized to embrace all Gentiles. So what was the exclusive possession of Israel now sort of breaks open and all the, the, the nations, and you know, the word for nations is the same as the word Gentile, for all the nations of the earth. Uh, are now incorporated into this promise given to Israel. And as a result of, of that, the promise of land, which was part of the promise to Abraham, is deterritorialized. So it's not as some um, Christians have suggested spiritualized. Some have suggested that what happens with the theme of the land in the New Testament is that it becomes equated with spiritual blessings, that the land becomes my own blessings that I receive in Christ. Nor is it that the promise of the land is now deferred to heaven, so we eventually go to heaven and that's when we, you know, we inherit the, the, the gift of the land. It's not that. The land, I think, remains in the New Testament a material, this-worldly creation reality, but it's now extended to embrace the whole of creation. It's not just confined to one tract of sacred turf in the Middle East. The gift of the land was intended to serve as a symbol and a foretaste of God's intention to heal the world, to reclaim all of humanity for himself. That was the reason why Israel was given this land. With the coming of Jesus, God has acted decisively to embrace all creation and to redeem all humanity and to create this new humanity, a new humanity that, according to Colossians 3, is renewed according to the image of its creator. And in that renewal, there is no longer Greek nor Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. But Christ is all and in all. Therefore, there's no more need for a holy land or a holy nation, because the entire world is sanctified in the one through whom all things were created. In the Act 4 of our story, God's holy people are scattered throughout all the nations of the earth to bear witness to this universal salvation. So the role of Israel's land to be a showcase of God's rule, a visible, if you like, political showcase of God's rule, is taken over by Christ and by the kingdom of God that he brings and by the church which enacts the kingdom. So, if you like, before the coming of Christ, God's people are called to cultivate one piece of territory as a microcosm of what God's rule should look like. And at best, they only partially succeeded to do so. Christ deals with the problem of sin at its root, brings God's kingdom to earth, 
and succeeds fully where Adam failed and Israel failed. Again, this is you know, really explicit in Paul's theology. He goes back to Adam. And the whole sense you get when Paul retells the story is that you know, Israel was the answer to Adam's failure, but Israel replicated Adam's sin. But a new Adam comes, Christ, and he succeeds where Adam failed, he succeeds where Israel failed. And his people are called to bear witness to God's universal kingdom, made known in Jesus as a foretaste for the future healing of the world. So in the New Testament, the biblical promises about the land, about the city, and about the temple are consistently re- reinterpreted as ultimately being about Christ and about his followers. There's little, if any, trace in the New Testament of the conviction that there is one tract of land or one physical location on earth, even the tomb of Jesus, that possesses unique sacred significance. And there's certainly no indication that violence is warranted to protect the purported rights of sort of sacred trust of this land. In the New Testament, holiness belongs to the Lamb, not to the land. The Lamb who was slain, not to the land that was given. And because the Lamb has redeemed all things, all land becomes equally holy. In fact, given that all things, whether on earth or in heaven, have been reconciled to God through Christ must render all things equally, all territory equally holy. Unfortunately, the notion of a territorial holy land did in time re-emerge in subsequent Christianity. So early in the 4th century, Christianity received state sanction under Emperor Constantine and became the official religion of the Roman Empire. And thereafter, attempts were made to identify Holy Land sites in Palestine. So uh, Constantine's um, mother or mother-in-law, which which is one, went off to Palestine and went around finding all these sites where the gospel stories had occurred. And gradually the idea emerged that making pilgrimage to these holy sites in Palestine was a way of gaining spiritual benefits. So pilgrimage became a way of accruing spiritual benefit. With the launching of the First Crusade in the 11th century, military action to repossess the Holy Land was deemed a way of securing remission of sins uh, and entry to paradise. I mean, prior to this point, this is 1095, prior to this point, belonging to the military in the Christian Empire was seen as being inextricably enmeshed in sin. So if you were a soldier and you killed in battle, you had to do stern penance afterwards. It was seen as a barrier to spiritual progress to be um, involved in bloodshed. After the launching of the Crusades, however, the killing of infidels and the cleansing of the Holy Land was transformed into a kind of mystical virtue that brought this eternal reward. So instead of pilgrims wending their way to Jerusalem as an act of penance for bloodshed, which happened before that, Crusaders now headed to Jerusalem to earn penance through bloodshed by slaughtering the inhabitants. So this idea, once again, of needing to protect holy space uh, led once again to the re-emergence of the idea of holy war, and we are still living with the consequences of that today. It stands, to my mind, in stark antithesis to the New Testament, 
where holiness belongs to God alone and to his people, not to sacred sites of any kind, which subverts, I think, any Christian justification for fighting over sacred turf and removes justification for damaging or destroying the earth at all for military ends. Because, as one writer has put it, there is no place to aim our weapons that is not holy land. It does not belong to the Redeemer. So, uniting all things in Christ furnishes, I think, a theological ground for both peacemaking and for ecological concern, for caring for creation, because Christians are surely called to look at the natural world as their inheritance, because of uh, Christ's work of fulfilling the promises to Abraham. So, I think, however much this might sound (laughs) different to what what we've often heard, I don't think there's any real theological rationale for the notion of a holy land. Not to say there aren't sites that because of their, you know, their uh, long association with really significant events don't possess a sense of, of, of aura about them, I accept that. But the idea that there is a piece of territory that God has given to a limited group of people that must be defended... Uh, in order to sort of honour that gift, I think is actually um, ruled out by the story of Jesus in the New Testament. Holiness in the New Testament belongs to the Lord and to his Lamb and to his people. The people who have beaten their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and no longer need to learn war anymore because God has acted to restore all things in Christ.